0: For those of you who weren't here last month, in our first uh, installment, just a reminder that when we say Talmud, well, tonight, anyway, when I say Talmud, um, I am referring to that body of literature in Jewish tradition that was fixed in writing around the year 500 or so. Uh, When we talk about Talmud, generally... Talmud, which comes from uh, the same root as to learn, limod, um, is a combination of Mishnah and Gemara. Uh, in technical uh, Hebrew language. Uh, Mishnah is the first collection, and then the Gomorrah is commentaries on the Mishnah. Uh, and together they make the Talmud, and if you were here, like in my library at home, uh, and if I pointed out, the Talmud, there would be 20 volumes of Talmud. 20 volumes of Talmud, because the Talmud is, uh, as is typical for Jews, and not just Jews, but certainly of Jews, it's all about arguing, and discussion, and conversation, and somebody saying, I think this, and somebody saying, well, but how about that, or maybe it's this, or maybe it should be this, or what do you mean it's that, I think it should be this, and, of course, what, what distinguished Jewish uh, tradition from many other religious traditions was the fact that Talmud kept it all. That is, kept the majority opinion and the minority opinion together. And as I, I'm sure I mentioned last month, uh, one of the most famous ongoing disputes in the Talmud uh, is a series of disputations, a series of comments and arguments between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai in the Talmud is called the house Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Um, And they would argue about everything. Um, Next month, this class, this session is going to be during Hanukkah. And so we're going to talk about what the Talmud has to say about Hanukkah and some of the arguments and discussions about that. But so I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but in any event, it doesn't matter, whenever the Hillel and Shammai had a disagreement in the Talmud, some of you know, Hillel always won, like always, always won. It was always this conversation, not because Shammai had bad things to say, because the rabbi's favored Hillel, and Hillel always won. What I always loved about the rabbinic commentaries about the disputation between Hillel and Shammai, particularly in the environment, the political environment in which we live, although thankfully that seems to be shifting slightly, but in the political environment in which we live, uh, what the rabbis said about why Hillel was the winner, Hillel's school of thought, and not Shammai's school of thought, was because when Hillel would give their arguments, they would quote Shammai first, and then they would give their justification. It was this... um, This clear sense of respect for the opinions of others, even when they disagreed, that distinguished the, the school of the house of, of uh, Hillel over the house of Shammai, uh, and was one of the main reasons that the rabbis of the Talmud gave for why they always chose Hillel's arguments out of. And of course, wasn't really the reason. But it was a lesson in and of itself. One of the things that uh, is important about studying Talmud thought and rabbinic thought, is last week we spent all the time on, on the tractate called Avot, Pirkei Avot. Avot literally means uh, both fathers and ancestors, because Hebrew is a very uh, gender-specific language. Unlike English, which is not so gender-specific, Hebrew is gender-specific, everything has a gender um, and Avot means fathers, but they used it to refer to ancestors. Um, and Pirke Avot is the only, the sayings of the ancestors, is the only section of the Talmud that has no commentary. It's this beautiful, simple book that's filled with aphorisms, and we may get to some of those tonight. It depends um, as well. But what I wanted to do tonight is share with you, um, Oh, and also I mentioned last week there's really two Talmuds. There's a Jerusalem Talmud and a Babylonian Talmud. They developed separately because of the exile of the Babylonian. Babylonian school became the dominant school, became the much more authoritative school. It is a larger Talmud, frankly. It's much bigger. So uh, for those who study, when they speak of Talmud, usually they're talking about the, what's called in Hebrew, the Talmud, probably the Babylonian Talmud. Um, so tonight, I'm going to share with you some, some thought And Bert, uh, um, I don't want to share this. That is, I don't want to put it on the screen because always to me it irritates me seeing just text and not the people because I much prefer seeing people. But um, if they want to reference this later, what should I tell them? They want to find this.
1: Uh, It'll be on our podcast site, and they can download it.
0: Okay. So because I sent it to Bert, it'll be on the podcast site after the class, and you can go there and you can download it. And
1: if you you don't know how to do that, send me an email and I'll
0: send it to you. Okay, so a couple of interesting Talmud texts.
2: Alan? Tom?
0: Yeah, that's why we mute. So, this is from uh, the Talmud called Brachot, which means blessings. And I have it in front of me, I'm going to read it to you. My mellifluous voice. It was taught... On that day, they dismissed the doorkeeper and gave permission for students to enter. I'll explain all this in a minute. For Rabban Gamliel used to announce, Rabban Gamliel was the head of the academy. Any student whose inside is not like his outside should not enter the house of study. That day, they added seats. Okay, so whoever I'm hearing, now, I'm, now I see why we, why we uh, mute everybody, right? All right, anyway. Um, Rabbi, that day they added seats. Rabbi Yochanan said, there is a disagreement between Abba Yosef Ben Dostai and the rabbis. One said they added 400 seats, and the other said they added 700 seats. I know you have no idea what I'm talking about, but you will. Rabbi Gamlio became upset and said, perhaps, God forbid, I have withheld Torah from Israel. He was seized that night by a dream in which he saw white jugs filled with ashes. That it was not so. That was only to appease him. That's the whole section from the Talmud. Is that confusing enough? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. This is what Talmud's about. When you study Talmud, as I did some in rabbinic school and some after, you study Talmud, you usually find yourself doing this. What the heck are they talking about? because they tend to speak in shorthand, like as if you know what the hell they're talking about when you don't, because they knew what they were talking about. So they're talking like in code language to each other, which makes studying the Talmud that much more fun and challenging when you don't know what they're talking about. You need commentary on the side to tell you you know, what it's all about. And in fact, when you look at a page of the Talmud, you see a text, you see usually... Mishnah, then you see commentary, and then all along the outside, you see all these other commentaries over the centuries of people saying this is what they meant, this is what they said, this is the context." So I'll tell you what this means, because I always found it fascinating. It was taught on that day. Your first question should be, what day was that day? What were they talking about on that day? And the answer is, that day refers to the day in which there was a rebellion in the rabbinic academy. The rebellion was they overthrew the head of the academy and installed a new head of the academy. The head of the academy was a man, a rabbi named Gamliel, Rabban Gamliel, that's another way of saying rabbi. He was the head of the Beit Midrash, which was the, the academy of study, in Yavne. Anybody know what Yavne is? Yavne is that cute little town in the north of Israel that saved the Jewish people. When there was, when the Romans were about to capture Jerusalem, many of you know this, I actually mentioned it last month, many, when the Romans were about to capture Jerusalem and take everybody into captivity and destroy the Jewish people, essentially, in Israel, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai escaped out of Jerusalem in a coffin, went to Vespasian, who was the the general at the time, and made a deal and said, we will surrender if you will give me this little town of Yavne and leave me alone and let me establish a school there. That's all we ask." The Spatian said, fine. Sounds like a good deal to me. I don't care about this little town. And the rabbi went off with some of his students to this little town of Yavne and The Romans took over Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem, sent people into exile, except for in Yavna, they created this Beit Midrash, this house of study. It became the intellectual center of Jewish life, out of which grew synagogues, the entire Talmud, and the entire future of the Jewish people, intellectually, morally, uh, ritually, And this is the reason we're here today. And we didn't just disappear after the Romans conquered Israel because of this little town called Yavne. So in this little town called Yavna, where they established this this preeminent academy of study, Rabbi Gamliel, at this particular time that the Talmud was written, was the head of the academy. Well, he was known to be not the most lighthearted of men, he was known to be not the most flexible of teachers. He was, in fact, known to be rather stringent and rather, uh, I don't know, how would you put it? He only wanted to teach those who could pass every test to get into the academy, basically. And so in this text, it says, that day, on that day, that day mean... The day that the students all rebelled, literally. The students of the academy had a revolution and they overthrew Gamliel and they put in his place Elazar Benazaria, a younger teacher, who was also brilliant. He was in the Talmud when you read Elazar Benazaria was one of the most brilliant. But he was a younger, the upstart, had a totally different attitude. His attitude was why are we hiding this wisdom from people? Let anybody who wants to study come study. And so the students overthrew Gamliel on that day, and they, as it says in this text I read you, which you couldn't understand, on that day they dismissed the doorkeeper. Who's the doorkeeper? Gamliel, because he didn't want just anybody, the riffraff to show up, put a guard at the door of the house of study, and he said, don't let anybody in, unless I say it's okay, essentially. So only those people that could pass his stringent test. What was his test? He used to announce, quote, any student whose inside is not like his outside should not enter the house of study. What that meant was you had to prove that the qualities and attributes of your heart and soul inside were the same as how you acted on the outside, your deeds and your learning. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to enter. And the doorkeeper was posted to prevent undesirable, quote, students from entering. On that day, Rabbi Eleazar changed all of that, opened the school to anyone who wanted to study. And so the Talmud text says, they just, some text says there were 400 students suddenly descended. Others said 700, I mean, look at what a huge number this is. 700 people suddenly wanted to study Jewish texts. Not so likely, but it was a hyperbole. It was an exaggeration to demonstrate a point that suddenly they threw open the doors of study and made it available to anybody who wanted to study. Gamliel, when he saw all these people showing up, according to this, this is the text I'm reading you, in the Talmud, it says, when Gamliel saw all these 400 students, 700 students, whatever the number might be, who suddenly showed up and said, oh, we would like to study this stuff too, these texts, meaning Torah, in commentaries essentially when he saw that he suddenly felt bad and said according to the talmud god forbid maybe i have withheld torah from israel maybe i was at fault in not letting all these people in and then in this talmud text they say he was he then that night had a dream and in the dream he saw white jugs filled with ashes. I know you have no idea what that symbolized, but for the rabbis of the Talmud, it symbolized, perhaps, that all these students that just descended were, as Gamaliel had imagined, really worthless, like ashes. Ashes in a jug. But, says the Talmud, it was not so. That dream was only to make him feel better.
2: <laughs>
0: That's what the, so the Talmud says, he felt better, he had this dream, he said, okay, I wasn't so bad, after all, in what I said, and what I did, and how I acted, but in fact, the Talmud said, really it was better to have study and Torah available to everybody, to whoever wanted to study Torah. And one of the proofs of that Is and I write this in the text that if you download it you'll see that later they actually reinstated Gamliel as the head of the Beit Midrash alongside Elazar. Why? Why reinstate him? And evidently, according to rabbinic commentaries, they realized one went one way to the extreme and the other went another way to the extreme. And that somehow having them both be there at the same time, it's kind of like maybe having a democratic president who finds some Republicans to work with, Mm -hmm. you know, what? to try to create a kind of balance so that everybody could see that it wasn't one extreme or the other, that the two of them working together would create a more, Enlightened, kind of balanced way of approaching what they thought was their the most important thing in their lives, which is studying Torah. Okay, so that was text number one. Before I go on, I know you're all muted. Rather than just lecture, I want to hear any reactions to that. So, somebody react to that. (laughs) What did you think? (laughs)
1: Well, I was going to say, one reaction I have, which is fascinating about Talmud, is the stories are used to teach. And the teaching isn't always very direct. Now, there are parts of the Talmud, I know, like last time, where it tells you specific things. And there are laws in the Talmud. But the stories, which is what this is, are among the most interesting and the most powerful and the most instructive.
0: Yeah, we have, uh, in the, the general makeup of Talmud stories, in fact, in all of Jewish literature, is composed of two things, what we call halacha and agadah. Halacha, strictly speaking, is a law. It's the legal text, as Bert just said. It says, you know, on Friday night, light candles 18 minutes before the sun goes down. I don't know, whatever law that came up to. And agadah are the stories... we think of as midrash the stories that we tell out of which we learn lessons you know and i have to say growing up as i did growing up in a reformed synagogue and the the jewish texts that i learned in my religious school and in growing up uh, really didn't make a distinction between one or the other and also didn't make a distinction as to where they came from so for example um, I don't know if I mentioned this last month because I never remember what I say, but um, you know, when when you read the Torah and you read about the beginnings of the Jewish people, who's the first Jew? Abraham. Abraham. Thank you. The first Jew was Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, right, are the first Jews. And from all of them, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Um, interestingly enough, by the way, And speaking of Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs uh, that that I mentioned earlier, um, something I read from Jonathan Sachs, which intrigued me this last week, he was uh, doing a commentary about Toldot, which was last week's Torah portion, which was uh, all about, well, it really wasn't about Isaac, but it begins, Ela Toldot, Yitzhak, these are the generations of Isaac, and then it really talks about Jacob and Esau. But um, any. And he pointed out some interesting things about Isaac, the Isaac as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that make Isaac unique from, all of, from the other patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob, um, which I really found fascinating. This is an aside. The aside is, one of the things that made Isaac different from either Abraham or Jacob was that Isaac was the only one of the three who never left Israel. He spent his whole life in Israel. Abraham left, went to Egypt. Jacob certainly left, ended up dying in Egypt. Isaac was the only one who stayed there. Isaac, who married Rebecca, is the only one who says he was in love with Rebecca. It was the only and the first real well, not only because Jacob loved Rachel, but Isaac was the first love story of the Torah. It clearly, he had a love relationship with his wife. That's one of the other things that was fascinating about uh, about Isaac. And what else? How many wives did Abraham have? A little pop quiz: How many wives did Abraham have? He had Sarah. Two. And Hagar. Well, he had Sarah. He had Hagar as a kind of wife. And he had, then after Sarah died, oh. he, he took another wife, Keturah, and he had four kids with her as well. If you read, will talk about it, but he had a bunch of wives. Jacob, Jacob had a bunch of wives, right? Jacob had Rachel, Jacob had Leah, Jacob had Zilpah, Jacob had Bilhah. They, each of them gave their handmaiden to Jacob. So he had a bunch of wives from which he had 12 sons and a daughter and whatever. Isaac had one wife, Rebecca. They were the only of the patriarchs and patriarchs, one wife, Rebecca. Unique, quiet, kind of a different kind of life. In any event, the reason I started talking about that had nothing to do with Isaac, but uh, in, in honoring Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, I thought I'd share a couple of his thoughts, which I love. But she wouldn't let him have any other wives. Well, she was lost, yes, she was quite a. That's what Carol said. Rebecca's quite a Carol woman, right. <laughs> right? You know, and uh, and it specifically says, since my mother's on the call, specifically says that when when Isaac met Rebecca, he fell in love with her, as she took the place of his mother, and because his mother had died, and he was grieving for his mother, and then they found Rebecca and he was in love and his life went on and he was fine then. And he felt fulfilled because he had this wife, Rebecca. But when I was growing up, what I was about to say, so I will never get to the vote, but when I was, what I was about to say was that I remembered learning the story about uh, Abraham and the idols. You've probably all heard the story of Abraham and the idols Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol maker, right? Did I tell you this last week? Last month, I can't remember. Uh, he was an idol maker, and the famous story is that uh, he left the shop one day and put Abraham in charge, and Abraham was playing with the idols and dropped one and broke it. And so he decided that uh, the only the only solution was he broke all of the idols except for the biggest ones, stuck a stick, in the hands of the biggest one, and then sat there and waited for his dad to come home, and his dad came back to the shop and looked around, and all these idols were broken, and it was a mess. He started yelling at uh, Abraham, you know, what did you do? And Abraham said, it wasn't me. The minute you left, the idols started arguing with each other. And the biggest (laughs) one, you know, beat up all the other ones, and, you know, that's what happened, and this is what happened. And his father goes, you know, and slaps him across the face and says, what are you talking about? I just made all these things. They can't do anything. You know, goes, Aha! you know, light bulb goes up. Ah, then why are they worshiping? Why are you selling idols for people to worship if they can't really do anything and they're just made out of clay? You know, that's a midrash. That's where I went to that. As opposed to halakha, that's, that's agadah. That's the story. When I was growing up, I thought that was Torah. Because what <laughs> if I know? You know, it's not Torah. It's a midrash. It's a story that the rabbis made up in order to help explain the Torah based on the, the, the Torah passage that said of two weeks ago, of Lech Lecha, when Abraham leaves his father's house. Because it literally says, you know, God says to Abraham, Lech Lecha avicha. leave your land, your homeland, in the place you grew up, and your father's house. So when the rabbis comment on what did the Torah? Why did the Torah specifically seem redundant? Why didn't you just say go, leave your house, leave your home, leave your homeland, leave your father's house. you know the rabbis uh, who comment on the Torah never like repetitions of things or explanation they always say there must be a hidden meaning here. They said it specifically referred to your father's house because his father was an idol worshiper and an idol maker and therefore that that uh, command from God was not just a physical, leave this physical space, but leave this spiritual, religious space of idol worship behind, and take me only as the a monotheist, as one God, and begin monotheism. They got all that from one phrase, leave your father's house. So because that's how rabbis think. And that's why the Talmud is 20 volumes, because they can say all of that from one little phrase. They said it couldn't just mean that, it had to be something deeper. So in any event, so that's how Talmud works, and that's how, as Bert said, the stories develop. We always tell stories in order to explain things. Okay, before I go on, any other comments anybody wants to say about this obscure text that I decided to provide you about the welcoming people into the academy versus not welcoming. How do you I mean, why did I pick this? Why does this have anything to do with today? Read my mind. What do you think? Something to do perhaps with the polarization that we now have to deal with and the efforts perhaps to come together. Thank you, Mark. Yes, and one it, it reminded me of the need that we have, that's one thing, of finding ways of of, of bridging differences, building bridges with each other. And that the more we separate from one another, the worse off we are as a society and as a community. And that I thought this was a, a great Talmudic example in the in the world of Talmud, which is all about study, of wrestling with this problem and trying to figure out ways of bringing people together and, and doing the opposite of polarization. Anything else? Yes. Yes, Judith.
2: One of the things that I find so interesting about studying Torah, Talmud, and all the Jewish writing, is the number of questions that we ask and that we are left with There there are not concrete answers to every question. And I don't think there are concrete answers to many questions in life. But the willingness to let these questions be dealt with and argued about are wonderful. And the other thing that I wanted to suggest is that um, the idea of the earlier fathers of our tradition having many wives is very common in many cultures in the world, because first of all, many women died in childbirth. And so there, there were other women to take over the family care and also that um, the women in many cases, we look at this askance now and think, Oh, how could they? But I know in many African cultures, there are many tribes that have many wives for one man, and the women love it because Mm -hmm. every woman takes on a different job, and they don't have to deal with a man all the time themselves. So I think looking at multiple uh, marriages has a lot of questions to ask and a lot of observations to be made about how it was dealt with in the culture.
0: Yeah, I think I I love that you shared that. Um, We have a tendency, I I have this tendency like everybody else, uh, of looking at history through our own lens. Right. Reading texts that came from a different era uh, as if, um, we live in a, what do we call it now, cancel culture kind of thing. We live in a a time when, um, particularly because of the internet, which is one of the uh, scourges of our life and one of the blessings of our life at the same time. Um, But we live in a time when, I mean, look, we've all seen it. Suddenly uh, someone is particularly, God forbid they run for office Mm -hmm. and something they said or did 20 years ago, or when they were in college or whatever, suddenly comes back to haunt them or they were in a play and they were put blackface on or something because everybody else was doing it, or because whatever, you know, that was happening in the 50s or in the 60s or in the whatever it happened to be. And here we are in 2021, and it's like anathema. And suddenly they are, it's like a stain on their entire life because of something they said or something they did. Obviously, there are times when, in fact, it is revealing of someone's character, things that they did in the past. That's also true. But we tend to look at things through through, with with the, uh, the measures of today that without taking in, in a broad kind of perspective of the timing of when people acted and when they said certain things, particularly in language. I mean, our language has changed and evolved and developed. And after all, mm-hmm. I'll say this over and over again, we reconstructionists say Judaism is the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. That was Mordecai Kaplan's great innovative definition of Judaism the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. And, and if we take that seriously, the first word is evolving. And if you recognize that we are evolving, then you have to make a, uh, make accommodation for the evolution and for the fact that we came from somewhere, and often we came from somewhere that in its own era had the best intentions, even if it wasn't up to the same Qualifications or standards or however that we have today and to be it's a challenge and it's a it's an art I haven't mastered it myself. I know and I think as a society We certainly haven't mastered the right balance of how to judge how we acted in the past with how we expect people to behave today to to give them a break sometime and say well, I understand that and figure out in, in which circumstances we say, I understand that in the context of its time, and in which circumstances we say, that's a revolution of someone's character. You know what I mean? And, and, mm-hmm. and I, I don't have the magic answer to that, but I, and I think it's, a, it's an art and it's kind of a dance that we wrestle with today, uh, certainly in the political world, but in the social world as well. Um, and I know as a, as a parent, one of the greatest challenges of parents today is getting their kids to take the reality of the internet seriously and the lifelong nature of anything they post on the internet, right. all the different, you know, variations and ways, the TikToks and everything, whatever else that they're doing that can come back to haunt them later in a million different in ways that we have no way of even knowing yet because we haven't got there yet, who knew you know, that your employers was going to be able to find out something you, that you thought was a joke or that you said or that you wrote or that you did 10 years ago or whatever it happened to be 20 years ago, and how that will come back to follow you. It's a challenge. And
2: I want to I add one more thing. Sure. It's so wonderful to see your mother here with us. <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful for me to see my mother here too.
1: <laughs> I, I have another comment and answer to your question as to why you may have chosen this. Yes. Uh, and, and what you were talking about before. The ability of Rabbi Gamliel at least to start to admit that maybe he was wrong. Right. Even though he still felt and had trouble with it. And the Did ability ask the to... Did he asked the question. Right. But, but, and, and the, the ability... And I know this happens at other places in the Talmud, where you know one Rabbi takes position A and is very strong about it, and later, after hearing Rabbi B, says, "You know what? Rabbi B actually maybe was right, and so Mm -hmm. I retract my opinion and I'll go with the opinion of Rabbi B." It takes a certain thing to be able to admit that you were wrong, or even (laughs) not admit (laughs) it. Not everybody's
2: like
0: that. I'm just talking. I'm just talking. <laughs> yes. yes, I'm often told that's one of my strengths. <laughs> saying I'm sorry and saying I was wrong. It's all about I'm wrong and I'm sorry. And whatever it is I did or whatever it is I said, that either I need to say I'm sorry or I was wrong about it. <laughs> so, another text. This is from the... Uh, tractate called Baba Kama. Um, Rav Yosef taught, what is the meaning of the verse? None of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. This verse is taken from Exodus, the Exodus experience. Uh, I know it's a long way between now and pa- Passover, but if you'll all think ahead to Passover and think ahead to the, the night of uh, Leil Shmurim, it's called in Hebrew, the night of watching, before the exodus of Egypt, what was the commandment that God gave to through Moses to the Jewish people? What, what were they supposed to do? Put the blood on their the doorposts of their house. Exactly. They were supposed to slaughter a poor lamb and dip hyssop in blood and put the blood on the door of their house, on the doorposts of their house. Now we have mezuzahs on the doorposts of our house. Result, they were supposed to put the blood and why? what. Well, what was that supposed to do for them? Well, to the mark who they were. at them pass. from the angel of death. Exactly. The Malachamavet, the angel of death, would see that blood and go, oh, not this house, and pass over, literally, their house, and go to the next house. It was presumably an Egyptian, because they were the, quote, guilty party in this drama of the Torah. And someone would die in that house, but they wouldn't die in the house of the Israelite who put the blood on the door. So the verse says, none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. You should- Sounds like the governor of California. Exactly. why I make this. So here we are, about to have an even greater lockdown this week. We are commanded for our health, for our safety, literally for our lives. So put the blood on the doorposts of our house, and then not to go outside of your house until morning, says the Exodus text. But in the Talmud, Rav Yosef taught, what is the meaning of this verse? And this is what his answer was. Once permission has been given to the destroyer, it does not differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. Moreover, it begins with the righteous, and then he has a quote from the prophet Ezekiel that says, I will, wipe out, I will wipe out from you both the righteous and the wicked, as a proof text. I'll get to that. That's the whole text. Rav Yosef says, what is the meaning of this verse? None of you shall go outside of the door of his house until morning. And his answer is, once permission has been given to the destroyer, the destroyer doesn't differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. So before I explain that in any way myself, what does it sound like to you? Carte Blanche. <laughs> just You see a person you destroy. Saddam and Gomorrah. What's the, What's the opposite? But it sounds like COVID. It's like COVID. It is exactly in that sense like COVID. If the commentary says, look, if you were a poor Israelite, Who happened to leave home on the night of the 10th plague, and you didn't pay attention to the mitzvah, the commandment of putting the blood on your door, what would happen to you? Someone in your house? Someone would die because the quote, destroyer wouldn't pay any attention. The destroyer, once the destroyer is let loose, the destroyer destroys and it's true in the real world our world as well it's what we call collateral damage in war but not just in war that death and destruction often sweeps up the innocent with the guilty hmm. how often have we i mean you could everybody on this zoom could come up with an example an experience perhaps from their own life perhaps from the world around you certainly this covid look there are those who are out there not wearing masks hopefully none of you are not wearing masks thinking that it's a hoax thinking that you know it's whatever i'm invulnerable why are so many young people suddenly getting because young people are dumb and young people think they're invulnerable and so they go to college and they you know they act like age appropriate they act like kids and they run around and they have, you know, 50 of them in a party somewhere. And suddenly, you know, yes, I, I, my wife was talking to one of her, one of her longtime friends, Barbie Benton. <clears throat> Some of you know, Barbie. Uh, Barbie is uh, living in, uh, at the moment, in their home in Aspen. Barbie has a son and a daughter. And in the course of the conversation, Barbie mentioned to Didi that her daughter, um, Ariana, has COVID-19. Oh. Um, and um, so Didi Dee Dee said, you know, does she have any idea how she got it? And of course, Barbie, well, not of course, but Barbie said, yeah, she knows exactly how she got it. She and her boyfriend, with whom she's living in uh, in Aspen, went to a party with 50 people. And while she was at the party, one of the girls that she was talking to said to her, you know what, I was with this other group the other day, and this guy tells me he tested positive for COVID-19. So this girl who's talking to Barbie's daughter was at a party where somebody told her he had tested positive, and she went to this party anyway, herself, right? Without knowing whether she had the disease or not. And guess what? All 50 people in that party came down with COVID-19. Nobody said, who's the good person in this room? Who's the bad person in this room? Who's the righteous person? Who's the tzaddik in this room? Who's the, like, the rasha? Who's the evil person? Who's the this? Who's the that? Who's better? Who's worse? Who's been studying Talmud and Torah? Who's been, who's been you know, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. The bugs don't care. You know, the infection doesn't care. The destroyer and the rabbis knew from life in general. You know, when the destroyer comes, the destroyer doesn't pay attention. Yes, we have the story in Genesis, the story uh, that we just read, of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Abraham in a different, challenging God. God tells Abraham, I'm going to go wipe out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham challenges God. It's one of Abraham's great qualities, according to the rabbis, is that he, unlike Noah... I'm like, Noah, you know, and read that in my own commentaries. When God says to Noah, I'm going to wipe out the whole world, but I'm picking you, build an ark, and I'll save your family. Noah says, how big, how tall, how many wood, how, what, what should I do? And he goes, "That doesn't say a word. Abraham, when God says, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, says, wait a minute. Abraham stands up to God and says, in one of the more famous phrases of the Torah, "Hashofet shouldn't the judge of all the earth also act justly? You, God, you pass yourself off as a judge of judging others. Well, wait a minute. I'm going to judge you. You mean you're going to wipe out the whole city? You're going to wipe out the innocent with the guilty? So God, in this story, which you all know anyway, God says, okay, if you can find fifty righteous people in the city, I won't wipe it out. You know, and then there's this whole bargaining thing, and you know, Abraham says, Well, what about forty? God says, Okay. And he said, Well, what about thirty? Okay, what about twenty? Okay, what about ten? That's it. God stops him at ten, and that's one of the reasons we get ten as a minion, ten as the limit the the minimum number to count as a community. So he says, Yes, God says, if you find ten righteous people, I won't wipe out the city. And then according to the text, they couldn't even find ten. But they wipe out and they wipe out the city. But the reality was the rabbis, whoever wrote the Torah, wrestled with this exact same problem. The problem is life is not just. Life is not fair. We all know that. We all live that. We all there's a whole there's a whole theory of philosophy and theology called theodicy, which is based on the reality of. Uh, why do the, the question of why do the good suffer in the world made Harold Kushner very wealthy rabbi when he wrote when bad things happened to good people many years ago Right, because everybody wrestles with this reality that bad things happen to good people well guess what, bad things happen to all people bad things don't single out good people you know, death doesn't single out good people death comes to everybody illness comes to everybody Challenges come to everybody. You know, uh, Wordsworth was the famous poet who said, you know, all are broken and some are stronger in the broken places. One of my favorite poetic lines. All are broken and some are stronger in the broken places. We all have stuff that happens to us. We all have. And some of us react to those, rise above them, transcend them, and turn them into a blessing in our lives you know it's uh, man's search for meaning the victor frankl book which was one of the most powerful life-changing books that i ever read man's search for meaning you know it was victor frankl while in the midst of auschwitz who in his mind already wrote this book re- recognizing that human beings could experience the most horrific degrading experiences of life namely the Auschwitz concentration camp, and that they could take everything away from him except for what was going on in his head, and that he had the power in his own mind to experience, to hold that experience however he chose. And that all of that, when he was liberated from the camp, turned into his entire philosophy of psychology, which he taught and which he lived. But, you know, the rabbis recognize in the Talmud... That the destroyer does not distinguish it's we who are challenged in our lives to then make meaning out of the circumstances of our lives that the circums- that the big learning here is that the circumstances don't determine the meaning. we determine the meaning of the circumstances. we don't all get to vote on whether we get sick, we can take care of ourselves. we don't all get to vote on whether people we love die, or people we love get sick, or things happen in the world, you know. What we do get to vote on is how we react to those things, the choices that we make as a result, the meaning that we make out of those, because as you've probably often heard me say before, I fundamentally believe that human beings are meaning makers, that that is what distinguishes us from the other animals of the world, is that we take our experiences... We don't react merely by instinct. In fact, we often react contrary to our instinct. That's what makes us human. We are able to have an experience, to have our instinct, and then to hold it at length, arm's length, literally, and go, well, how do I want to experience this? How do I, what do I want this to mean to me in my life? And we go one way or another with it. So, what do you think? (laughs) What do you think? What do you think? You know, living in this gotcha culture of the internet, living in this time of our pandemic, of the wisdom of at least 1,500 years ago, the rabbi is recognizing and saying once the destroyer gets permission to destroy doesn't distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Don't play in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't close your eyes and think, well, I'm a good person. Nothing's going to happen to me.
1: All right. Yeah. You, you got, you got it. You
0: have to take care of yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Any other comments on that uh, that Talmud piece? Giving you the option. Yes? No?
2: All right. It's, what? it's not only the don'ts. It's the learn to accept.
0: What do you mean, Judy?
2: Well, I mean that bad things will happen. Huh. And how we deal with them, as you said, makes all the difference we can choose life or we can choose to suffer for the rest of our life in other words spend our life dying Uh,
0: yes it's like we're all terminal from the minute we're born right
2: that's right But how we live our life is is our choice the time that we have is our choice
0: i don't know how many of you (coughs) excuse me how many of you logged on to uh, our interfaith Thanksgiving service yesterday. Yes, it was wonderful. Uh, it was it was really lovely. Uh, yes. I was uh, hoping, expecting to be uh, co-leading it with uh, Rabbi Amy, who, as uh, those of you who logged on, knew she wasn't there. She had to stay home because she has a fever. Um, not, not a COVID fever. She has a fever. doing better. She's feeling better today. She had a fever because it was her reaction to the uh, shingles vaccine that she got a shot from Mm -hmm. the day before, and uh, many people have said to me that that's how their bodies reacted when they got the shingles shot. They got fevers, and they they felt lousy for a day or two, and unfortunately, uh, that happened to Amy, and out of an abundance of caution, as we like to say, um, she decided she better stay home. Plus, she felt miserable, so, and so I did it all myself. But, um, but last night, uh, since I suddenly had to be speaking instead of her, um, one of the things that I mentioned was uh, one of my favorite passages from the Torah, which is that passage from Deuteronomy that says, I set before you today good and evil, blessing and curse, life and death, therefore choose life. Choose life. Uh, you know, as which uh, Judith just remind us, reminded us of. And what I mentioned last night is a parallel to this, which is I've always been struck by what it doesn't say. It doesn't say I, I place before you good or evil, blessing or curse, life. Good not.
2: and both.
0: Yeah. Because everybody gets it all. You know, in all of our lives, we have all of it. We have good and evil in all of our lives. We have life and death in all of our lives, We have blessings and curses in all of our lives. And our challenge, our ongoing spiritual challenge always throughout our lives is figuring out which is which, you know, and is taking the things that appear at first to look like curses and figuring out how we can turn them into the blessings of our life, how we can hold them in a way that allows us to experience the blessing part of it, what people often called the silver linings of the dark clouds of our lives because <clears throat> we find them. That's the meaning-making part of human beings that I referenced before. That I mean, people have talked about this pandemic time that we're living in and some of the blessings that have come out of the stay-at-homeness, differing deeper relationships with the people that they're staying at home with for some. The ability to do what we're doing right now and interact with people all over, literally all over the world. I don't know where all of you are who are logging in, but you may, I'm in Pacific Palisades, but you may not all be in Pacific Palisades. You could be anywhere in the world. You know, my mother's in Sacramento, I know that, so she's not in Palisades. You know, we have people, when we have Torah study, logging in literally from Israel and literally from Turkey and from all over the world. And as Bert said at the beginning of this, we had people even that logged on to, The podcast, I guess, that listen from all over the world, including Egypt. You know, because and that's part of the miracle of the modern world, the miracle of of Zoom, the miracle of our ability to transcend our physicality, Mm -hmm. our physical space that we never used to be able to do.
2: And yet the Talmud and the Torah are still relevant. And I'd say they're even more relevant because of it. Nothing changes. Yes. Point.
1: Thank you, Laurie. So, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs, and uh, I think he is the one who said this uh, that we are time sculptors, that our lives, what is our life? It is how we sculpt the time that we have. And the question. question is, what kind of sculpture do we make?
0: Beautiful. Yeah, I thought it was.
2: It's you lovely.
1: Know. Reminds
0: me of that famous story of Michelangelo schlepping a big, huge hunk of rock into the middle of the town square and people saying, what is that? And he said, there's an angel in there trying to get out. <laughs> <laughs> I should be a rabbi. I all these good stuff. Anyway. <laughs> oh, okay, so final final uh, section from the Talmud for today from uh, a different tractate called Munachot. It was taught, one of my favorites, it was taught, Rabbi Meir used to say, a person is obligated to say 100 blessings each day. You may have heard me say this. Actually, I said it yesterday, I think, last night.
2: Yes, <coughs>
0: you did. About the, as part of the, I was preparing for today, and I remembered that section. I'm supposed to say 100 blessings a day. That should keep you all busy enough that you mm-hmm. stay out of trouble. <laughs> keep that out as your blessing treasure hunt every day, 100 blessings, and uh, you'll stay out of trouble. Anyway, in the Talmud, Rabbi Meir used to say, a person's obligated to say 100 blessings each day as it is written, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy, and now Israel, what does Adonai your God require of you? That's his proof. <laughs> what does Adonai require of you that you're supposed to say 100 blessings a day? You would have, if you don't know Hebrew, you would have no way of having any idea what is he talking about because it's really a play on words for him in the Hebrew. How does he get a hundred blessings out of that Deuteronomy verse? It's simple. He reads the Hebrew word, what ma, what does Adonai, what does <coughs> and he reads instead as Meya. same letters, "mea," which means a hundred in Hebrew. So may-a. he doesn't really say ma, what does God require of you? It says maya, God requires of you a hundred. 100 what? 100 blessings. The idea is to see the world through eyes that express gratitude for every blessing you experience from the moment you rise to the time you retire at night. It's like, I love this one, the famous Hasidic story of the rabbi who received the gift of a flask of spring water from one of his students. He tasted the water, and he said to his student, thank you for this delicious Sweet, sweet spring water. And the student smiled at his teacher's gratitude, and he left with a spring in his step, pun intended. Okay. Later, the rabbi's assistant took a sip of the water and immediately spit it out with a grimace and said, asked the rabbi, how could you say this water was sweet when it's so bitter? And the rabbi smiled, as only wise rabbis can say. (laughs) And the rabbi said, you only tasted the water, I tasted the gift. Huh. So, a hundred blessings, finding blessings in the cursing of the bitter water. And By the way, the Deuteronomy verse goes on to say what God does require of you, which is to walk in God's ways, to love God <laughs> with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep God's its vote for your good, that if you do what God wants you to do, it'll be for your good. It's this idea that gratitude, having an attitude of gratitude, is the best lenses through which to see the world. That if you search for the blessings in life, guess what? You will find them. If you look for them, you will find them. You all know people who, you know, they have empty people of the world in the glasses, that no matter what, it's the bitterness of life, that no matter what you give them, it's not enough. It's kind of like not to say that my daughter is this way at all, because she's not, but one of the things that I remember about Gable when she was a kid was, we would say, Gable, I have this cupcake. Do you want one? And Gable's instant response would be, can I have two? Like
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: like this, can I have two? He <laughs> was an instant negotiator, can I have two? It's like, you know, asking for more. So life is a challenge. It's this challenge to find the blessings every day in everything, particularly now. Look, we're living in a COVID time. And if there is one thing that is, I think, personally, the most destructive part of this pandemic we're living in, frankly, to me, it is that niggling sense in the back of your head that every single human being you see is a potential life threat. Go outside of your home. If you're walking down the street, if you go to a grocery store, if you go anywhere, somehow This message is sitting just, for some not so under the surface, but for everybody at least, under the surface, that every single person you see is a potential life threat. What is that doing to our sense of community? What is that doing to our sense of belonging? What is that doing to the generosity of our spirit, of our hearts? What is that doing to how we see other human beings, how we can embrace the rest of humanity, when everybody is a potential life threat, you know, and how much we fundamentally long for that to go away and why we understand people who are ignoring it and going to weddings and having parties and having Thanksgiving this week with extended families, which I'm frankly encouraging you not to do because you know there's going to be a huge spike of illness afterward. What can I say? You know, it's the right thing to do. Follow the CDC guidelines, please, everybody, keep yourself safe.